0: Well, why call it Good Friday anyway? What's good about Good Friday? If you Google that question, you can read some elaborate answers about how the saying may at one time have been God Friday, not Good Friday. Or through Latin or German roots, it may have originally been Holy Friday. But I think a simpler explanation is that we've always called it Good Friday because though Jesus was killed violently and unjustly on that Friday, he did not stay dead. He did not remain in the tomb. He rose on the third day. Furthermore, what he did when he died was not simply the experience of temporarily losing out to his adversaries. It was not merely giving his followers an example of turning the other cheek. What he did when he died on that cross was pay for sin. He took our guilt. He was saving sinful humanity. And Friday wouldn't be good without that. And Friday wouldn't be good without Sunday, but as a package, it is indeed good. Just like Isaiah 53 is a chapter in the Bible that you might not at first feel good about, but it is good. It's a chapter in the Bible that explains Jesus' death, the need for it, its purposes, how it came to be. And it tells us in some graphic, astounding, mind-blowing detail. So if you have a Bible with you tonight, would you turn with me to Isaiah 53, a little to the right of the middle of most Bibles. If you've got a Bible on your phone, just type it in and get there. If you don't have a Bible, either on electronic form or in print, uh, we'll put the text up on the screen here as I read it. The passage actually begins in chapter 52. There are three verses at the end of chapter 52. If we were were marking out new chapter headings, we might want to back it up a few verses, but that's all right. Chapter 52, verse 13, through the end of chapter 53, let me read it all. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. Well, this is God's word for us this evening. Let me presume upon your patience and take a few minutes to tell you a little bit about the book of Isaiah as a whole. Partly because the Bible is not come to us in just a collection of sayings. These chapter numbers and verse numbers don't always help. People love, you know, this verse and that verse. And the Bible can be wrongly treated like it's a box of chocolates and here's a good one and there's not a great one but okay it's chocolate and we'll eat it I guess. No the Bible is more like a a mosaic or a tapestry a grand story and this chapter stands out on the landscape of the Bible kind of like a Mount Everest or a K2 summit but it is still part of a whole mountain range in the book of Isaiah that we should get a bird's eye view of. This book was written 700 years, approximately, before Christ, at a time when God's people had for many generations previously gone astray from their God. They had turned to other gods. The book of Isaiah says that God's people at this time were just as wicked as the nations around them, the pagan nations, that they were to be a light to. During the days of Isaiah, you get the feeling that he might be the lone man in the land who is with God and for God. And God told Isaiah the prophet that his preaching in his time would not be effective. People would not listen. They would not hear. And that proved to be the case at the end of Isaiah's life. He was sawn in two with a wooden saw. Nevertheless, what he wrote down was, for his generation, a warning and a judgment. And for generations that followed, it was also a warning, and even more than that, an invitation and a message of hope. There are two halves to the book of Isaiah. Chapters 1 to 39 are the bad news. Chapters 40 to 66 is the good news. The bad news is that God will soon severely chastise his people for their sin. He will yank them from their homes and from their land. And their land and their cities will be destroyed. And they will be taken off into slavery in Babylon. 39 long chapters recounting the sin of the people and the judgment that's about to come. But then chapter 40 makes a turn in a hopeful direction with the good news. It says, chapter 40, verse 1, look at that if you want to turn back. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly. Her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. A handful of chapters later, you can see chapter 45 for this. God promises that the chastisement that's coming won't be forever. The slavery that's, that's coming, it will come to an end. They will return to their land. God will restore them after 70 years. What's more, God will save them. God will actually fix them. He's going to fix this historic, unending problem of human rebellion. God will forgive, he will have mercy. Chapter 48 says he will hold back his anger. In fact, he will extend his mercy and salvation beyond the borders of Judah, even to the ends of the earth, to the nations. Chapter 49, verse six, it's too light a thing. It's too small of a thing for God to just save one nation. He's gonna save the world. Chapter 49, verse 7, my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. Or chapter 52, verse 10, you can see we're getting closer to where we started reading. The Lord will bear his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations so that the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. But how will God do it? Not just restore them to their land, but save them, forgive them, fix this thing, not just them, but the whole world. How will God do it? Through His suffering servant. The suffering servant that we read about at the end of chapter 52 and in through all of chapter 53. It's a glorious piece of God's word. The old Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said, This is one of the chapters that lie at the very heart of the scriptures. It is the very holy of holies of divine writ. Let us therefore put off our shoes, for the place whereon we stand is special holy ground. This 53rd of Isaiah is a Bible in miniature. It is the condensed Essence of the gospel. So that's what's before us this evening. There are five stanzas of three verses each from chapter 52, verse 13, to the end of chapter 53. These five stanzas of three verses each predict the coming of the God man, Jesus. Who lived righteously and died sacrificially and rose victoriously. Five different S words will help us keep track of these different stanzas. The first is summary. The end of chapter 52 is a summary of the servant before it works into the particulars that follow. There's the summary. Notice verse 13 he'll be exalted. He'll act wisely. He'll be high and lifted up. He'll be exalted. We should behold this, we're told. We're we're wanting to do that tonight. We're wanting to behold the suffering servant. He'll be exalted, no surprise. This is God's man. However, verse 14, he'll suffer. It'll be astonishing how greatly he'll suffer. His appearance was so marred, verse 14, beyond human semblance, beyond any of the children of mankind. This suffering, though, will not be aimless or unfortunate. Verse 15 also says it will mean sprinkling of the nations. What is that? Well, you wouldn't get it if you were unfamiliar with Old Testament and what came before This is referring to the priestly sacrifices where blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat as a symbol of covering sin. This is saying that this suffering servant is also a priest. And his suffering will be a sacrifice. It will be a cleansing, a purifying. And again, not just of Israel, but of many nations. Kings from these nations will stand in awe at all of this. Verse 15 says, they will shut their mouth at all of it. The suffering and the exaltation. There's the summary. Secondly, their scorn. Their scorn, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 53 Notice chapter 53 begins with two questions, two important questions relevant for the whole rest of the chapter. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord, the strong, saving arm, to whom has that been revealed? Who gets this? That's the question. Who gets this? Who understands this? Who sees this? Who will believe that this is god's plan and this is god's man and this is salvation many won't many instead will scorn verse 2 he grew up like a, a young plant like a tender little shoot off of a branch that you might be tempted to snip or prune because it doesn't look good it doesn't look necessary like a root out of the dry ground. It's not promising. It's not hopeful. You think of Jesus' humble beginnings, his humble birth, his humble family. Well, that's what verse 2 is talking about. He had no form or majesty that we would look upon him and be impressed by him. It's not so much that this is saying Jesus was not handsome but was ugly that may or may not be the point the the point is he wasn't impressive and even more important is that we were blind to whatever glory was there he had no outward impressiveness and the glory that was there was cloaked in human flesh packaged as a servant and it was presented in suffering And much of the world is not impressed by that. And so he was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Men simply hid their faces from him. Ray Ortland, a pastor in Nashville, he's written a book on the whole book of Isaiah, and he's got this to say about these lines. Do not think, he says, if you had been an eyewitness of Jesus that you would have admired him. Not even his miracles made the impact that they should have. His own family at first misjudged him. When he traveled with his disciples, it wasn't like the movies. Jesus didn't have a holy glow about him. The woman at the well had no idea whom she was talking to. Even John the Baptist became uncertain about him. Our Lord Jesus wasn't special in ways... That count with us. In fact, he became hideous in his sufferings so that people shunned him. Why did the servant of the Lord sink so low? Ortland asks. He had to become like us for us to become like him. That's good. Thirdly, sacrifice. Right here at the heart of our passage, Verses 4 through 6 tell us about the sacrifice that he made. His rejection was so severe, it was a violent death, a gruesome death. But not just an unfortunate death, not just an unjust death, it was a sacrifice. Notice notice the, the sacrificial language used, kind of like sprinkling, which was used earlier. Now we have language that we might call that of substitution. It's for us. Our sin was upon him. It was laid on him. Substitution is at the heart of the gospel. It's what Jesus came to do to be righteous on our behalf and to pay for the sin and guilt that we all deserve because we, just like Israel in these days, we've all gone astray. Isn't that what it says later on? Yeah, for our part, excuse me, let me take a drink of water. For our part, verse 5, this is our contribution to the equation transgressions, iniquities, what we deserve because of those, chastisement. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned away from God, all of us. Not just Israel at this time, not just a particularly kind of sin or sinner, all of us. But surely he has borne our griefs. Notice that word. Notice that word. Surely in verse four, surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So here is our greatest need. This is the biggest problem. This is the most important question. And Isaiah fifty-three gives us the answer. The problem is our sin before a holy God. The question is, how might we be right with a holy God that we've all rebelled against? The answer is Jesus, the suffering servant who was righteous and didn't deserve any of this. He bore our sins. He carried our sorrows. The transgressions and iniquities and chastisement that we deserve was laid upon him. It was for us that he died. This is what was taking place at the cross. And this here paints it for us in such vivid and thorough terms. This is unique stuff in the Bible. I don't know if you know this, but when you get to the gospel accounts and it records the crucifixion, some of the gospel writers will simply say, and he was crucified between two thieves. There's no no gruesome detail. There's no elaborate description of the violence. Of course, it's there in the mind of anyone who actually saw crucifixion in those days. The first Bible readers would have come across the word crucifixion and shuddered because they'd seen it. But here we actually have it spelled out in great detail. Pierced, crushed, wounds, grief, sorrows, stricken, smitten, afflicted. All this for us. It reveals our sin, it reveals his suffering, and it reveals our salvation. John Stott, the London preacher of the last century, he said, Nothing reveals the gravity of sin like the cross. It is impossible for us to face Christ's cross with integrity and not feel ashamed of our apathy and selfishness and complacency. For if there was no way by which the righteous God could righteously forgive our unrighteousness, except that he should bear it himself in Christ... It must be serious indeed. It's only when we see this that stripped of our self-righteousness and self-satisfaction, we are ready to put our trust in Jesus Christ as the Savior that we urgently need. This is what we already have sung about, isn't it? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood. Lose all the guilty stains. You came from heaven's throne acquainted with our sorrow to trade the debt we owe, your suffering for our freedom. Or was it for crimes that I had done that he groaned upon the tree? The answer is yes. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. That's the sacrifice of the suffering servant. Fourthly, verses 7 through 9 tell us about his sinlessness. His sinlessness. It was sinlessness in the face of such grave injustice and cruelty shown to us in his silence before his accusers and abusers and eventually his murderers. If you just look down, you can see verse 7 is talking about his trial. When he opened not his mouth and was led like a lamb to the slaughter. The gospel writers quote this as they record Jesus' trial. Verse 8 describes his death. Verse 9 describes his, his burial with amazing detail. He made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. His tomb was provided by a rich man. Verse 9 restates his innocence, his righteousness, his sinlessness, the the injustice of his treatment. And By the way, this is the portion of Isaiah 53, if you know Acts 8 at all. This is the portion of Isaiah 53 that the Ethiopian is reading in his chariot one day. And he doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. Philip is sent by the Holy Spirit to engage him. The Ethiopian asks Philip, about whom is this guy talking about? Is he talking about himself, the prophet Isaiah? Or is this about someone else? And then we read in Acts 8, then Philip opened his mouth. Beginning with this scripture of Isaiah 53, he told him the good news about Jesus. There's the question each of us needs to ask. Who's this about? And hear the answer from Philip in Acts 8. This is the good news about Jesus. Fifth, the news just gets better because there's success. The last stanza of three verses tells us about the success that he wrought. He was successful because this was God's plan all along. Notice verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, God, has put him to grief. Theologians call this the covenant of redemption, that in eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit agreed to do this thing. The Son agreed to go, to take on flesh, to pay for sins, to suffer and die and be raised and be exalted. Jesus it said of him in Hebrews 12, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. This was the plan all along. It didn't need revision partway through. It wasn't like the cross is the banana peel, but the resurrection is uh, you know—it's the boomerang. It comes back around and now it's all good. Oh no, this was the plan all along. The death and the resurrection. Jesus was dying as the just one for the unjust ones that he might bring us to God. He was successful. He was successful. Proof of that is his resurrection. Look down at the end of verse 10. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Verse 11, it's out of the anguish of his soul that he will see and be satisfied. He doesn't just die. This one goes on living after he dies. Here's the resurrection 700 years before it happened. He's victorious. He gets the portion. He gets the spoil. That's victory language. It's, it's completed. It's as good as done. You see in verse 12, at the end, it's put in past tense. He bore the sin of many. He makes intercession for the transgressors. It's as good as done. It didn't happen yet. In fact, it won't happen for quite some time, but it's coming. It's sure. It's victorious. And, and his victory means our victory. If we believe it, if we see it, if the Lord reveals it to us as powerful. Do you remember that question back in verse 1? Chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he's heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I ask you tonight, has God revealed to you that this stuff we're talking about in this chapter is God's powerful arm of saving and redeeming humanity? Do you believe this stuff? Do you believe that what the prophet wrote down 700 years before was fulfilled at the coming of Jesus? In his suffering, in his sacrifice, in his success and glorious resurrection. Now naturally, left to ourselves, we won't see the cross as salvation We will see it as sad and unfortunate, or even embarrassing or stupid. I've noticed or remarked before that there is a piece of ancient graffiti from about 100 AD where it depicts a man on a cross. That man has the head of a donkey. Down below is a man gazing up and written in script, in Greek, it says, aleximonis worships his God. It's a mockery of the crucifixion of Christ and the worship that Christians give that Christ. Paul said long before that, probably in the 40s or 50s AD, we, pe- we preach Christ crucified That's a stumbling block to the Jews, and it's foolishness to the Greeks. So you can understand from one angle, even from some some scriptures, like Deuteronomy 21, where it says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You can understand how from some scriptures, the cross of Jesus and the crucifixion of so-called Messiah would be, or could be, a head-scratcher or even a non-starter for many Jews, and also Romans. But with Isaiah 53 in one hand, and the gospel accounts of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus in the other hand, how can we deny that this is what Scripture says? That Scripture says what it is, and and this this is true. The New Testament writers just keep coming back to Isaiah 53. 39 times they either quote from it or allude to it. 39 times, perhaps more than any other Old Testament text. How can we deny that this is simply the plan of God and the fulfillment of prophecy spanning 700 years in between? I mean, what are the alternatives? Let me help you out if you haven't thought about the alternatives. Here's what... This is what critics would say. One option, that any similarities are just coincidental or a stretch or not there. The similarities that we might see between Isaiah 53 and Jesus' crucifixion. Some would say, yeah, you you guys are seeing it because you stare at it too long and you want it to be there. Well, I leave that up to you whether you think that's legitimate. Another group would say, Perhaps Jesus went out of his way to play at the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. But just too many people are involved. You can't get yourself crucified by the Romans uh, unjustly. Other people are involved in this, right? I mean, you might be able to conclude that maybe with the triumphal entry, Jesus maybe did some play acting to fulfill it. Like, hey, go get me a donkey. I'll get on it. I'll come marching in. There'll be a lot of excitement. Maybe with something like that, you could say, Jesus planned to fulfill this. But not with the cross, not with all the betrayal, not with the detail like a rich man paying for your tomb. Another group would say, this servant isn't a person it's Israel as a nation and that's partly true but Isaiah 53 sure looks like a person doesn't it it sure looks like an individual doesn't it the suffering servant is rejected by the nation so he can't be the nation the suffering servant dies dies unjustly and innocently Israel never died, never died unjustly or innocently. It's much easier to conclude that the servant Israel, a nation, in the plan of God, eventually would be embodied and fulfilled in a perfect Israelite, a single person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Sometimes the most obvious and easiest answer is actually the one that is the most spectacular and miraculous. So this is the answer to the problem, the problem. Your wrestling with guilt, your struggles with shortcomings, your feelings of inadequacy, your inability to fix both what's outside of you and inside of you. And by the way, the world tells you the problem you're dealing with is outside of you and the answer's inside of you. But Christianity says, no, actually, the problem is you. It's inside of you. And the answer is outside of you, in Christ, in his death and resurrection. He's the answer for guilt. I was reminded this week of Lady Macbeth washing her hands after her role in Duncan's death. She cries out, Out, damned spot! Out, I say! Here's the smell of blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. How much better to look to Christ in faith And see him as your payment, your guilt removed, your salvation, and your righteousness. As we'll sing in just a minute, how much better to join saints of old for thousands of years now. And give praise to God. That he was bearing shame and scoffing rude. In our place condemned he stood. He sealed his pardon. sealed our pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Lord, indeed, I do pray for those with us this evening for whom this is all new or foreign or strange. We pray it would come to be in their hearing this evening glorious, wonderful, the answer we thank you that christ crucified is not a stumbling block or folly to everyone to those who are called to those you call christ is the power of god and the wisdom of god we pray for those with us this evening that haven't yet come to know it we pray lord you'd reveal yourself we pray you'd call them We pray Christ would be power and wisdom and salvation and glory for them tonight. We pray for us as Christians, Lord, that we would further glorify you for what you've done. We we, we would be further confident in the truth of your word, the, the wonder of your plan, the surety of our salvation. We pray you'd give us joy and confidence and faith and perseverance because of our glorious Savior. Help us now to sing praise to him for being such a great Savior for us. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.